The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us turn to Deuteronomy 30, our final sermon, our 15th and final sermon in this series. We could probably preach a few more on the song of Moses and Moses' death. There's a lot of material in Deuteronomy. We chose not to preach on every possible text. And two weeks from now, when our Sunday evening service resumes, we will be starting a sermon series in the book of the Gospel of Mark. So quite a change dramatically shifting from Deuteronomy and the choice of life and death here that we have before us and the Gospel of Mark, but really not all that different if you understand biblical theology, Jesus coming to fulfill all that Deuteronomy spoke about. Let us hear God's Word, Deuteronomy chapter 30 at verse 11. Moses speaking to the people of Israel, "'For this commandment that I command you today,' Is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, And you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his inspired and inerrant word. We come to the ending chapters of Deuteronomy this evening and are concluding this series. And here in Deuteronomy 30, we have God's word to the people of Israel through Moses on the plains of Moab, which is where Deuteronomy was first delivered in its entirety. 
Here are the people of Israel after their 40 years of wilderness wandering, and they are finally about to enter the promised land. And Moses, in Deuteronomy, has been setting before them God's covenant, the covenant of God that he made with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, and now the people of Israel, the second generation, we would say, is called to enter into this covenant, to ratify it, to say yes to it again at this point. Moses has been setting before them this covenant, this law, which is life, and calling them to embrace this covenant and to resolve to walk with their God in faith and in love and obedience as they enter the promised land. It is not some works righteousness that he expects perfection from them, but it is a call to put their faith in their Lord and to let that faith show forth in the fruit of their life. We saw last study two weeks ago from the first half of chapter 30, a key passage in Deuteronomy where God tells them that ultimately the nation will turn away from Yahweh, from their God. And God will bring upon them all the curses that are pronounced in this book. And he will take them into exile, into a foreign country. And he will bring on them all the covenant curses. But then there's this amazing promise, what we would call the promise of the new covenant, even though that language in Deuteronomy 30 is not used. But in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Then we hear in the second half of chapter 30 this refrain about this call to live by walking with God. Pastor Walker two weeks ago showed us that this wonderful promise was finally and ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and the ushering in of the age of the Spirit, the New Testament age, we would say. And you and I as Christians live in this age of fulfillment and how blessed we are. But now, back in Deuteronomy 30, in the second half of chapter 30, it is as if Moses draws their eyes back from the distant future where there's going to be this exile and yet there's going to be this return and then finally there's going to be this new covenant that God will circumcise their hearts and we know that's fulfilled in Christ. But Moses draws their eyes back from the distant future and he exhorts them to walk with God now. And Moses describes to them in the second half of the chapter the way of life. This choice, as it were, between death and life, between good and evil. And we can learn from this section of important truth that applies equally to you and to me, we who live under the new covenant. For this is essentially new covenant language here as well. For there is not an absolute distinction between the old covenant and the new These are not diametrically opposed. No, it is more a matter of fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The new covenant in its rich 
deeper fulfillment and greater blessing and uh, much clearer uh, understanding and uh, certainly the coming of the King Himself, Jesus Christ, to actually live under the curses of the law on behalf of His people and to rise victoriously. Jesus has come and triumphed. Yet, I would like to look at this passage we have before us as a strong exhortation to us, even as it was to ancient Israel, to understand what it is to walk with God, to understand the Christian life and walk, and to see that as, I would say, a warfare, as a struggle, as a battle, really as a constant choice involving our heart and mind and soul calling us to love and walk in relationship to God, to cling only to Him, to seek to obey His law, His commands as it's fulfilled in Christ and applies to us, and to seek to walk in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That even though we are now members of the new covenant in Christ, yet what the Israelites were called to here in terms of their own warfare with sin applies to us. Our warfare with sin, even though we have been decisively made new in Jesus Christ and we have decisively died to sin and been raised to newness in life, in fact, we are not to be all that surprised that even when we come to faith in Christ and experience conversion and regeneration and new life, Yet, the ugliness of sin is still present with us to some extent, and the warfare with sin is still with us. Yes, we are forgiven. We have been given new life. We have the promise and the certainty of eternal life, and as we saw earlier in our service, of seeing Jesus face to face, but that is not the end of the struggle in this life. The warfare with remaining sin continues. Let us then look at this under a couple of points. First of all, the way of life has been clearly made known by God. Here we see Moses talk about this way of life. And he begins by saying that this commandment, verse 11, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. And later on at the end of verse 14, he says, so that you can do it. Moses is not saying that they can keep the law perfectly. In fact, he's just prophesied under the Spirit that they would miserably fail, that the generations to come would turn away from the living God and go into exile because of it. He's not saying that it's not hard, that they understand the commandments, now just do them. That would be works righteousness. That would be a legalistic form of righteousness that wouldn't require Jesus Christ to come. No, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, salvation has always been by God's grace through faith in the Messiah. They looked ahead to the Messiah. We look back historically to the Messiah. But the call to walk with God in covenant with Him by grace is a life that is submitted to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. It was true for them, even though for them it was not as clear It was full of shadows and types and mosaic law ceremonies, the temple, the tabernacle, all of that. 
looking ahead to Christ, and we live in the age of fulfillment, still it is similar in that it is a call to walk with God. Here are the Israelites. Just think of them hearing this, a summary of the law and this choice that is before them to walk with God. And there they are standing on the plains of Moab. They've been in the wilderness all of these years, and now they're about to cross the Jordan. And we know that Moses is going to die. And Moses isn't holding forth this doctrine, some kind of doctrine of salvation by works. But essentially, this is language that speaks of fellowship with God. Gospel, faith-oriented, loving God. God has given them this covenant, this commandment. And throughout chapter 30, it is mentioned that it is the way of life. God has given them this promise of life in their Lord. They must receive it by faith. They must trust in the Lord, very similar to what Pastor York was speaking about this morning when he talked on Romans 4. And how was Abraham justified? Not by works of the law, but by trusting the promise of God in Genesis 15. In fact, when you read verses 11 through 14, this language of the commandment not being in heaven, who will ascend there and bring it back to us, it's not beyond the sea, it's, it's not hidden in some way. In fact, there were many ancient Near Eastern religions and philosophies that looked for somehow to find some secret of how you would uh, find God, find the true God, or somehow find wisdom. And there was all, always this sense of going beyond the sea or going up to heaven. And Moses is saying, no, it's not that way. God has plainly revealed it. In fact, the end of chapter 29 has that very familiar verse that many of you know by heart that makes a distinction between the the sovereign will of God and the revealed will of God. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord. That's the purposes of God that, you know, we could say the purposes of God for our lives. When will I die? What's going to happen to me three years from now? What's going to happen to me three days from now? I don't know. Those are the secret things of God that have to do with the sovereignty of God and His purposes, which He's working out. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Moses summarizing all that has come up to this point in the book and saying, these are the things revealed by God. And that's the same sense that we have here in chapter chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. In fact, if you hear that language and it sounds familiar to you, you know that it's the language of Romans chapter 10, which is talking about the gospel, where the apostle Paul in Romans 10 takes his very text and refers to it when he's talking about the clarity of the gospel. And he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Notice how Paul gives it a very Christ-centered now emphasis. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
both in Romans 10 and in Deuteronomy 30, the emphasis is that this is the announced word of God. It is clear. It calls for response. You cannot say that you didn't know. You have heard this word of God. It is not secret. It is not esoteric. It is accessible. It is made known to us. Certainly, Paul is speaking in Romans 10 about entrance into the Christian life. And one word of application to us, even as we think about this, is that entrance to the way of life begins by faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Entrance to the Christian life, to eternal life, to the way of life, is through Jesus alone. The Bible has made this abundantly clear. For the Israelites, they could not claim ignorance to God's covenant, God's law, God's way of life. How much more is that true for you and for me who live in the age of fulfillment? And I would just have you stop to ponder this. Maybe there is someone here tonight who's heard the gospel many times. Maybe you've heard it from your mother's knee. Maybe you've heard it taught in Sunday school for years. Maybe you're an old person now and you've heard it, but still you have not responded in faith. Wherever you are in life, if you have heard the gospel, which I am speaking to you now, that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, Deuteronomy 30 is calling you to respond to this way of life. Let us think then about the daily application of this when it comes to how the Christian responds to God. And this brings us to our second point. The Christian life is a warfare. Here we see this in verses 15 to 20. Really, the whole text brings this out. Walking daily with Jesus Christ as a believer involves daily warfare with remaining sin. Here are the Israelites about to enter the land, and Moses says, the law, this covenant is clear to you. And in verse 15, he says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply. And really, the essence of this living is not just physical life, but spiritual life. This brings up the problem when I talk about the Christian's warfare with sin. Many believers struggle with the question, why do I keep on sinning? Why do I keep struggling with sin? Is there something wrong with me? Is there some secret in the Bible that I haven't figured out? Is there something wrong with my conversion? Is it possible that I was not truly saved, that somehow my prayer of salvation was not right, that I wasn't really born again, that I'm a hypocrite, that I'm an an apostate, that I wasn't born of the Spirit? Does sin somehow have a a deeper grip on me than it has on other Christians when I look around the church? And the answer that I believe is clear from Deuteronomy 30 and from the New Testament as well is no. 
we should not be surprised that the Bible portrays an ongoing warfare against indwelling sin. Moses isn't saying, this is going to be easy for you to keep the law. Now I've, I've made the law known. This is really easy. Enter the land and everything will be fine. No, he just told them that they're going to disobey. But here he's talking about really the daily walk of the believer, of the Israelites as they enter the land. And this idea that they are called to love the Lord their God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands. That's walking in fellowship with the living God. Deuteronomy 30 describes the way of life of daily turning to the Lord in repentance and faith. Actually, when we think about conversion, conversion takes place when a person, by the new life of the Spirit, is able to make that baby cry to the Lord of repentance and faith, trusting Jesus Christ and turning from sin. A decisive choice, we could say, but a wholehearted choice, not just some intellectual assent or just agreeing with a certain creed or a certain truth about Christ, but whole person, soul, heart, mind, our emotions, our affections, everything in it wrapped up together. Now our allegiance shifted to Jesus Christ, our trust wholly in Him, our love is for Him, our desire to walk with Him and please Him. But now there's going to be a warfare. We've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of life. There's going to be warfare. And the way of entering the Christian life through repentance and faith is now the everyday way of fighting this warfare. That is the way we continue in the Christian life. I love the World War II illustration of how the Allies took islands in the Pacific. You've maybe heard me use this illustration before, but here would be the Marines landing and making a beachhead, and then more troops coming on shore and expanding that beachhead until finally these Allied troops would take the headquarters of the island somehow and destroy the center of operations for that enemy island. But then, if you look at that as conversion there was still a mopping up process to take place. There were news stories 10, 20, 30 years after some of those islands had been taken by the allies where there would be an individual or two individuals of the enemy still living and hiding in the jungle on an island somewhere not knowing that the war had ended. They were still fighting. We don't hear those stories anymore. It's too late to hear them after all these years. But that mopping up operation, I think, is a great analogy of what happens in the Christian life. Romans 6, Paul says that we die to sin. How can we live any longer in it? But that doesn't mean there's no warfare. Yes, we've decisively died to sin, but now, Paul says, reckon yourself dead to sin but alive to God. Do not offer your members as instruments of, of sin, but offer your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The way we fight this daily warfare is the way we entered the Christian life, by repentance and faith. Look at Galatians, how Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 talks about this daily walking with the Lord. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There he's basically saying, he's not saying the Christian isn't to keep the moral law of God. He's saying life in the Spirit is what empowers us to more and more put to death the flesh and live keeping in step with the Spirit. Or I like how it says in Colossians 2, verse 6, where there we find that Paul writes, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You see, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Think briefly about the elements of this daily warfare. One major element is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. That's true for both Old Testament and New Testament believers. So, Fighting this daily warfare means that we continue to stand in him alone. I like the way that it's described in Deuteronomy 30 at verse 20. Moses says, Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. Some translation has have clinging to him, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. Doesn't that sound a lot like Colossians, where Paul is likewise talking about the life that we have in Christ? And there he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Moses said that the Lord is their life. Hold fast to him, cling to him. The apostle says Christ is our life. Set your affection on things above. Faith in Jesus Christ means continued daily standing in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, being reminded of the gospel, being refreshed spiritually in the gospel every day. Really, that's the essence of the commands we read here in Deuteronomy, to love the Lord your God, to trust in the Lord and not to trust in false gods. Moses isn't talking about perfect obedience and somehow deserving life. He's talking about exercising faith in Yahweh, in their Lord, and trusting their Messiah to come and show forth that faith in a life of love for God and love for others. I like the way Paul says it in the beginning of Philippians 2. If then you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then... And then comes the exhortation about loving others in the body of Christ, being like-minded, seeing not to your own interest, but the interests of others. How is it that we love God and love others? It comes out of a life of faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him. So there's this strong emphasis 
that our daily warfare, one of the main elements of our daily warfare with sin is faith in Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton has this famous quote about the law and about um, the warfare with remaining sin. And he says, a rhinoceros in a china shop may have power, but he has no legal authority. That makes us all kind of smile because we just imagine a rhinoceros kind of swinging his tail or something and a whole cabin of China going over. He doesn't have any legal right to do that, but he may have power. Chesterton's point is we cannot fight a rhinoceros with the law, which may be the legal restraint. No, you need the power of the gospel. Someone else has said it this way, trying to stop the rhinoceros by slapping him with the blade of grass is like trying to obey the law of God. It cannot be done. No, there has to be this faith in Jesus Christ, this new power that comes from the gospel. But that often, the second element is skipped over. And the Christian life is seen as wholly a life of faith and just stand in grace, and that's the way we have to fight this warfare. No, the second element is closely tied to the first repenting daily of our sins. And it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 30, at verse 17, Moses brings up this theme of our hearts easily going astray. And he says, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, then he goes on to say, you shall surely perish. He's talking about the lure of idolatry and how our hearts go astray. And the Israelites had to be aware of this. And and Moses calls heaven and earth to witness against them. And he says, essentially, choose life. Love the Lord. Obey him. Hold fast to him. What I would like us to see from this is that repenting of our sins daily brings, should bring to all of our minds the constant temptation that all of us face for our hearts to be drawn away to other things clearly sinful things, obviously sinful things, but also many good and ordinary things that would stand in the way of us and our relationship to our God, things that become too important to us. The heart of all temptation is putting our own desires on the throne of our lives. That's the warfare that you and I can expect this very week, tomorrow in your life. And No wonder Jesus talks in Matthew 15, verses 17 to 20, about what defiles us. And the disciples are perplexed by this parable he's talked about, what makes someone clean or unclean. And Jesus says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come... And then there's this long list, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus is putting his finger on our heart that so easily goes astray. There are desires that all of us have that are wrong, that we don't necessarily want at all, but that calls us to this warfare with remaining sin. All the wrong desires are not eradicated by what Jesus has done. uh, That awaits when we see him face to face. 
So we shouldn't be surprised that the Christian life is a walk of turning away from these desires in a daily basis, whether they be big or small, in repentance. The problem of remaining sin is not a problem that can be simply glossed over. No, it's, it's vital to the Christian life and experience that the believer understands the nature of this warfare. And repentance involves confession. And confession is not just somehow intellectually admitting, yes, I sinned. Confession is, you can admit you, you're, you've sinned, but you're not repentant at all, or you're not con- truly confessing to God. Confession involves owning your sin and seeing it in, it in its true colors before the holy and just and loving God. It's the Psalm 51 kind of confession. Against you, you only have I sinned. As the Catechism says, it's hating and forsaking sin because it is displeasing to God. Repentance doesn't mean living comfortably with your sin or excusing your sin because you're just that way or actually because there's someone else to blame and it's really their fault. No, it's a hostility, a constant opposition and hostility in the power of the Spirit to sin in our lives. John Owen, the famous theologian, has a whole book on Romans 8 where it talks about this calling in Romans eight thirteen to repent and put to death sin. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice, there's that theme again. Romans 8 is full of that theme, that life in the Spirit is true life. It's the way of life. But notice that Paul's writing to Christians, people who have been made new in Christ, and he's talking about this constant warfare, and he says, this is the Christian's calling by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, the sins of the body, in other words, and that is the way of life. Repenting of our sins is at the very heart of making progress in a life of holiness, in a life of growing in the likeness of Christ, in a life of growing in loving the Lord and loving the people around us. But the third element that I'll close with is mortification of sin. And really, faith and repentance are at the heart of mortifying sin. Mortifying means putting to death. It's a theological word. We don't use that word very much. But really, we see this in Deuteronomy where they're called to choose life. And they're called to turn away from these idols that would tempt them. Cling to the Lord. Hold to the Lord. It really, when you talk about doing that every day, that is the process of putting to death sin by the power of the Spirit. I would just say here that there's a strand of dangerous theology abroad in the church and even in Reformed churches in our day that gives an insufficient answer to the problem of remaining sin. I think often it's a well-intended answer. It's an attempt to highlight grace. It's often an attempt to avoid legalism and just having your Christian life be a set of do's and don'ts, and that's all that's involved. But in, the, in its worst expressions, it says something like this. Don't even try to obey the moral law of God because you are doomed to failure. Just live by grace. Just cling to the cross. 
Now, there's certainly an element of truth in that. Yes, do cling to the cross. Yes, live by grace. But this error, I believe, uh, looks at failure as, in a sense, almost virtuous and almost good because our failure highlights grace. Scripture never looks at sin that way. And the basic problem about this is this wrong teaching, I believe, about the Christian's posture, the Christian's attitude toward remaining sin. Throughout the Bible, the teaching is that the Christian's attitude, the Christian's posture toward remaining sin is not just making no big deal of it or expecting it. It's a posture of warfare. It's an attitude of combat, of hostility to remaining sin, to turn away from it because it is displeasing to God, not to look at our failure in a posture of expecting and maybe even somehow celebrating failure and defeat because it magnifies the grace of God. In Romans 6, Paul says, may that never be. At the very heart of all of this, we walk in a living relationship to Jesus Christ. Do you hear that as Deuteronomy talks about the way of life? As it talks to the Israelites, the Old Testament people of God are called to love the Lord their God, to walk with Him, to cling to Him as they enter the land. How much more as you and I, as New Testament believers, as we fellowship with Jesus Christ, remember that He is the one who has a work within us to change Him into His likeness. Thanks be to God for his grace to us. Let us pray. Father, we are in many ways just like the ancient Israelites, just like these Old Testament saints, but here we think about the fact that we have the fullness of the Spirit. We have Jesus Christ having already come in history. We have the New Testament teaching and telling us all the meaning of what he has come and done for us, and yet we are often discouraged and cast down. We are often defeated and looking at our failure in our Christian walk. Oh, Lord, encourage us, not by helping us to think that it's somehow easy or that we will ever be done in this life with the warfare against sin, but being ready to fight this battle daily, to, in a sense, choose life by repenting, by trusting Jesus Christ, by putting to death remaining sin so that we might more and more walk with you, our God. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.